At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey, everybody, and uh, welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. We're going to keep that conversation rolling. Uh, but we've got Adam Chitwood uh, back. He's finally retired. Congratulations. Uh, if I had like a crowd cheering in the background, uh, I would uh, put that audio on now. But uh, this is a Mickey Mouse organization at best. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, he's back. He's going to talk about some cool stuff that uh, um, he kind of posted on LinkedIn, uh, which kind of got a lot of conversations going because. Uh, it's, it's definitely interesting what's happening out there. He was at the Agile Battle Lab, uh, B1 pilot, and, uh, and a lot of experience. But I'll let him do his, uh, his intro. But remember, uh, like, share, subscribe. Tell all your friends about the podcast. Follow us on LinkedIn, which is what we're going to be talking about today with Adam. Uh, and then also uh, Instagram. Uh, we don't have a Facebook page. Uh, but, you know, all the, all the stuff. So, uh, and donations are always open. Thank you, everybody who has donated to the podcast, uh, keeping us going and uh and helping us produce this uh show so thank you adam thanks for being back and uh go ahead and uh retell us about yourself it's still not a trap it's great great to be here um thanks for inviting me back yeah uh yeah t6 fape turned b1 pilot uh turned weapons officer uh did a short stint at the state department working ukraine and some other uh other pieces there before i went out to do staff at paycom turned indo paycom Held about three or four different positions there for uh, for senior leadership, and then from there uh, joined the organization called Squadron Next, and then quickly transitioned it to Air Combat Command um, as the Agile Battle Lab. So multiple pivots, multiple rebrandings over three years, pivoting to what the customer needed as our customers change, as leadership you know uh, needs change and stuff like that. Um, and kind of where I think the, the impetus for this came from was some pieces when I was at the State Department in Georgetown, as well as uh, in the Agile Battle Lab, understanding the tech and how it can be used and all the different implications of new technology, as well as old technology, um, and how to come up with better ways of doing things once you understand it. 
once you've seen it in action, um, as opposed to what we are also used to, which is just evolve your ideas on PowerPoint. Um, and kind of what the, the LinkedIn post got at was once you understand the capabilities of the technology and you understand where technology is going, the ways in which we, the Air Force, owns the air domain does not need to be limited by our legacy operational concepts. So think back to, you know, you guys both flew the Viper, um, Vader, you're flying the, the Eagle now, Bender to the F-35. That all dates back decades um, at a minimum to uh, our plans in the 70s and 80s to update the Air Force, but but maybe back to, you know, World War II and, and before that to the, the fighter, uh, you know, owning the skies type of thing. And my concern over the last, call it, few months was the way the Air Force talks about collaborative combat aircraft is merely an evolution of that old way of dominating the skies. And the tech has moved on from that to a point at which I think doing CCAs is like putting armor on a horse for the horse-drawn cavalry, you know, pre-World War II. Like, no, you need a tank. You don't need, you know, steel plates on a horse type of thing. Um, and when you think through manufacturing, sustainment, uh, multi-domain operations, uh, multitude of sensors, the, the ubiquity and the, the cheap amount of ways in which you can, you know, buy precision in, in arms and in, and in platforms, you know, the, the two things that we used to keep separate, munitions and platforms are two very different things. You can start to merge those and merge the rate at which you want to acquire them, merge the your level of attrition, in which, you know, you consider allowable. Sometimes we in the Air Force call it acceptable level of risk um, and the ways in which we integrate and fight the fight that, we, that we're all kind of, you know, leaning towards, which is, you know, think China. Western Pacific, Taiwan, South China Sea, all that kind of stuff. Um, adding some unmanned fighters to operate the exact same way that we always have is, I think that's going down the wrong path. And one thing that I think puts these concepts ahead of CCA is when you're out in the field and you understand the technology and you meet the programmers and you see how fast this technology moves, it, I, I consider it to be uh, superior to, like I said, the PowerPoint evolution of what if we go from a man fighter to an unmanned fighter? Um, that makes sense on PowerPoint, but that's not the most, I think, effective use of our resources, manpower, and the way in which the Air Force dominates the air domain. Well, I mean, you had so many, so many great uh, points there, and I think it's so difficult. And this is kind of my argument where we can't just use military members to innovate and make change because again, military members are not paid to come up with like, think up these ideas and, and be, uh, you know, some sort of like ideas man at Google or anything like that. Like we all have missions, we all have objectives and we all know how we achieve the task today. So the way we think about achieving the task tomorrow is just a better widget than the widget we have now. And then all of our future widgets like just our rhyme with everything we yeah. have today. And it's new it's, tech for an old mission. I need a stealthy F-16. How about an F-35? Yeah. I need a stealthy F-15. How about an F-22? 
I need a better AOX, how about an E7? It's all just newer, more expensive versions of, of old answers that date back to like I said, the 70s and 80s at a minimum. Well, and that's the tough part is because you don't even realize that technology has gone so far that it's not even the same, like the same hammer isn't going to fix it. It may not even be a hammer anymore. Like your solution may be something so wildly different that you could never even understand how you're going to get that nail. You know, it's like having screws now and you're like, oh, sweet. Yeah. I, I no longer need a hammer. In, in 2017, I was taking Hacking for Defense at Georgetown and we were working on counter small UAS was the problem set with the Army's asymmetric warfare group. And I was part of that group. Um, and I, I attacked it as a B1 weapons officer. And here's, here's kind of what I know about the technology. Here's why certain kinetics can and can't work and blah, blah, blah. Uh, fast forward a few months and my teammates who were young, didn't have a defense background. One guy was in the oil and gas industry. Uh, another teammate was, uh, was in uh, you know public affairs essentially. Um, and they came up with, how about we use drones to fight drones? You know, like run, run a drone into a drone type of stuff. Um, and they quickly took the technological lead. And I was the, I was calling it the military expertise, but they were, they knew what was going on a lot more with tech than I did. Um, and we came up with, hey, here's the answer. Uh, there was no money to be put behind that. So that was kind of a shortcoming back then in 2017 of the, the H4D program. And I think that's evolved. Uh, but fast forward then to 2019, I'm out in the field and I see the Anduril Anvil, you know, fly a drone into their drone. I'm like, great. That, that was the answer. We had the answer. It was internal to the government. And now we're going to just buy this, you know, pay out the, pay through the nose relatively, you know, more expensive than, than paying, you know, government IP, but way cheaper than probably paying for, you know, the IP if it came from one of the big five, you know, defense contractors and stuff like that. Um, but Andrew came up with the answer because they had money and they were creative. Um, and you mentioned, you know, it's not just military. One of the best things we had going for us at the Agile Battle Lab, and I think that it still continues today, and I'm a big believer, is the, the cross-functional, uh, cross-background expertise of everyone there. I was the only pilot. Um, there was Intel, Space, uh, ABM, SEER, and kind of the list goes on and on. And it wasn't just one person. And as we talked to the comm people, the cyber people, the technologists, you know, private industry, everyone brought a little bit of special sauce. And, you know, the companies don't know how to fight wars, but they've got something cool. And they bring a, they would bring a toy and they pr propose it to us or we'd go looking for a toy. We say, you know what, that's pretty cool. But if we tweak these one or two things and we did it like this, we could do something pretty awesome. Um, we didn't, you know, completely understand the technology. Definitely, you know, we didn't invent it, uh, but they didn't know how to, you know, go to the front lines and understand the fog and friction of war either. Um, and that applies not just to the Silicon Valley startups, but I would say across the board, even to people who have been on the government paycheck for a long time, don't, you know, understand the intricacies of the war fight. Um, so that cross-functional background, I think, is the best way. You know, if you ask a fighter squadron how to solve a problem, eagles are going to solve it one way, and everyone in the squadron is like, "Yeah, that's the way." And you know, F-35 guys are going to say, "No, this is the way." Um, but you're all going to be homogenous within your own organization. But when you start cross-pollinating a lot of different backgrounds, you're going to understand that there's a lot of different 
ways to attack the problem set. And I, I say that, you know, bringing the conversation back to CCAs, my concern is if I build a fighter-sized aircraft, it's going to have the same physics of a fighter. And not just for launching missiles, but in terms of the cost of procuring it, the cost of sustaining it, uh, the amount of runway it needs, the amount of fuel it needs, the amount of tankers it needs. And there's even, you know, uh, some Air Force leaders were talking about allocating those CCAs to a fighter squadron. Well, when a fighter squadron deploys, you know, you probably you might not deploy parts of your fighter squadron 500 miles closer or further from the fight than the other part of your fighter squadron simply because the ranges are different. So, you know, we allocate CCAs to an F-35 squadron, there's probably going to be the same ranges, physics, missiles, you know, fuel considerations, all that kind of stuff. So we'd find ourselves buying a fighter-sized unmanned aircraft for the same cost as well as operational challenges that we get with that F-35. Uh, same for NGAD or, or whatever else. The, but if you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and one of the problems you run into, is like, again, we're trying to solve the same, we have all the same tools for the problem. So we have that CCA is going to have to carry the same weapons that fighter sized aircraft do. So the CCA can't be that much smaller unless you build an entire suite of, you know, weapons and stuff for this specific platform. Uh, so I think there's, there's a, a lot of problems because then you're still kind of solving one tactical problem. And I think you were spot on when you said like people who are not operators end users, people who are not the tacticians don't understand how to solve these tactical problems. It's because it's not their, their problem set. Like we go into like large force engagements to like practice this and work together and, and see and learn how to, you know, utilize all the tools that are available to you to, you know, take down some sort of some adversary. And that is a skill set that is extremely important to it, but it's not probably the skill set that's going to help you come up with the future technology. Cause that's just, you know, it's almost like you understand that just so you can then in the future, when new stuff does become avail available, you're like, this is how we should utilize it. I would assume. Yeah. When new stuff comes about, you can either, like I said, you know, do old mission with new technology, which is kind of the way the Air Force is talking about CCAs, or you can do new mission stuff with new technology. And that's where, um, you know, I, when I put on a LinkedIn post, this is a hypothesis in search of, of feedback. I cannot prove it to you right now, but I'm willing to bet that if we built up a CCA or a UAS battle lab, cross-functional in nature, we could figure that stuff out um, and you could build solutions a lot faster than you could with just figuring out how to OT&E an F-35 slash CCA squadron. Um, you can do it for a lot cheaper because it's intended to be cheaper um, and you could evolve the things you needed, the AI, the sensors, the, uh, the logistics, the, the requirements. Um, Requirements for, for those of you who haven't been on the, the staff as a, as a four-letter word, you know, there's there's big R requirements, and that can be as simple or as complicated as a process as, you know, people start to talk about. Um, one example I'll give is uh, the Gripen, which is a Swedish fighter, kind of, you know, size of an F-16, but a lot cheaper to operate. 
um, and a lot more agile when you think about, you know, agile combat employment, because it was designed to be agile. Um, there were parts of that, that when they built the requirements for this, for the grip in, they said, I, I need to be able to swap this panel out in, you know, five seconds. And the engineer said, no, it takes 30 seconds because of all the things we got to do. And they said, no, we got to do it in five seconds. And then they had to build that piece to be swapped out in five seconds or whatever else. So I'm speaking kind of in general terms, um, but we haven't built our force for that kind of agility. And as you build a cross-functional battle lab, you can say, I need this drone to fit in a common launch tube. Or if it doesn't, I need it to fit like this in a Conex or whatever else. If you were to write all the requirements for that without experimenting rapidly, um, you're going to get it wrong. And it's not that someone else is going to get it wrong and I'm going to get it right. It's that if we've never done this before and we have brand new operational concepts and brand new technology, just the chance that we get it right is infinitesimally small. So let's acknowledge that we're going to have to learn something along the way. We as the Air Force, we as the, the manufacturers, uh, et cetera, and we can come up with better ways of doing stuff. Um, and you can come up with those trade-offs. I remember talking to one drone company and he said, what's your, what is your runway requirement? I said, I'm not going to give you a number because I don't understand the design trade-offs. We're used to an 8,000 foot runway or more in the air force. And the easy answer is a zero foot runway, just, you know, vertical takeoff and landing or rockets or whatever else. That's easy. And that's easy for me as the warfighter with no understanding of design trade-offs to make. But if I gave you a number like 3000, and you can get me a 3,300-foot runway requirement, you know, tomorrow, but it takes you three more years to make those design trade-offs to get to 3,000 feet. I I want to have that conversation as opposed to just setting a nice, pretty round number um, on a requirements document. So let's work with the the manufacturers, the designers, um, to figure out what the design trade-offs are for stuff. Because rarely is it a you meet this line or you don't it's hey i've got 10 requirements i can meet eight of them really easily and it's gonna take me a lot of money a lot of time to get those last two is that good enough in our world and especially for the speed at which you know dod senior leadership says we need to go eight out of ten is a grand slam like let's do it but the ways in which we operate uh the dod procurement system it's let's take forever to get that 10 out of 10 and let's make it look at like the things that we're used to looking at because we sit in our cubicles all day, which is an unmanned fighter-sized aircraft. Well, and that's 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 the yeah. way our our acquisitions process just doesn't allow for that variability. You know, it's like, hey, the the paper is the guiding line, and you can't deviate. And and anybody who's on the operational side knows like you can't work in certainties. You know, you have general like, hey, you know, we're going to do these things. We're going to pay a lot of attention and a lot of effort on safety and stuff. But outside of that, like sometimes you're just going to have to explore the space and see yeah. what works and doesn't. And that's where the air force really requires some structural change as well. Um, in my experience, in the agile battle lab, the acquirers were well separated from the warfighters were well separated from us doing, I would call it a new version of, of oper developmental operational test. Um, but we didn't just focus on the platform, the F-16 OT squadron or the F-22 DT squadron or flight or whatever else out at Edwards. We were focused on the holistic warfight 
Um, and if you had the acquirers alongside the, whether it's a warfighter or the testers or whatever else, and I'm sure I'm probably offending somebody in AFMC unintentionally, and there's good people out there doing good stuff, but there's also people that are, you know, not familiar with technology and they say, I don't concur with this because that's how we've never done it this way. And we don't acquire stuff that way. And we write a, a requirement based on what the acquirer thinks the warfighter needs instead of the acquirer, you know, being hot, hungry, and sweaty out in the field alongside the tech sergeant who's supposed to be operating that equipment. Um, and, you know, I've gone, I've gone off the hill and I've seen the challenges of the agility in the F-35. And, you know, I, I know what the Dash 60 beta looks like to get the F-15 started. And just like the F-15, those Dash 60s are in museums as well. Um, and there's better ways of, of acquiring support equipment and whatever else. So uh, I think the, one of the best things the Air Force can do for itself is to reorganize itself to put some of those acquirers on the front line smartly so that we are writing smart requirement documents when we have the requirements figured out. And until then, we're working with the developers to understand the, the design you know, trade-offs. Because when you work with some of these companies like, the Air Force wants this, and 90% of industry wants that. And you figure out that the, the differences are so small, but we think what we have is so special. Um, to an extent, we can say, hey, yeah, make those tweaks for the Air Force-only version of that. But if we think we're going to utilize commercial off-the-shelf equipment, let's acknowledge that that one additional requirement it doesn't meet is not the end of the world. Well, and that's one of the things that I think uh, I, I like the kind of the the spreadsheet or the PowerPoint slide that you kind of created of the of the different platforms and the different utilities of them because I feel like every time we we have a new problem, it has to be we try to come up with some exquisite technology to fix the problem. And you know we we complain about this like we drop fifty thousand dollar bombs on stolen vehicles in the desert, you know. And you're like, that's costing us way more money than it's costing us our adversary. And then we turn around and we say like, hey, we need to not be seen, you know, air to air so we don't get shot. And we build these amazing exquisite technologies, which are amazing. And like obviously Bender flies like a fifth gen stealth fighter. Uh, but then our adversaries just build radar jammers and those radar jammers make that person not seen. And you're like, I feel like we we're taking the expensive route to solve the problem. And granted there's, there's problems in, in each one, you know, like one cost of, you know, maintaining and stuff like that goes up, but then also, you know, jammers aren't perfect either. So there's, there's, there's pluses and minuses on each side, but using the stuff we have and then making it more versatile and, and making more utility out of the stuff that we currently have while we're coming up where just a, completely different solution because anybody who's built a tactical plan and said like, here's your problem set, here's your tools you have, solve it. Every time that there are adversary tools that have multiple functions, it's like an exponential increase in the problem set when like one SAM yeah. can launch different types of missiles or if different platforms can carry different things, you're like, oh, now I don't have... The, I can't just come up with one solution for this problem. And sometimes the counter to a weapon 
or to an offensive equipment is is more expensive than the other. You know, a Patriot will always be more expensive than the ballistic missile it's intended to shoot down. Like that's just the nature of the game. So um, one of the challenges I think the Air Force suffers from in terms of thinking about the problem set is that the parts of our operational concepts from the 70s and 80s that were right was we were very offensively minded. The A-10, the F-15C, the, you know, seed, we're going to take a fight to the enemy. We're going to defend forward. Um, and, and we've, that has evolved in the F-35 and the F-22 and who knows what the NGAD is going to do and whatever else. And the, the B-21 definitely that takes the fight forward. But the ways in which we can take the fight forward differ very much today. You know, throwing out low cost jammers, throwing out precision warheads that might cost, you know, 10 grand to fly 500 miles, but you still got to defeat it with, you know, maybe a Patriot or the HQ-9 or an SA-17 missile. Like that is, that's the next way of taking the fight to the enemy. If we focus only on defending our giant airfields, if we only focus on defending our, you know, expensive manned assets, we're on the, we're strategically picking the wrong side of that cost curve. Um, so we should be smart about how we take the fight to the enemy. And I'm not saying we don't need fighters or bombers anymore, like, you know, far from it. I'm saying that should not be the only way in which we take the fight to the enemy. That should not be the only way in which we deter an enemy. We should, you know, darken the skies with, uh, kinetic and non-kinetic weapons that makes someone say, I can't. I can't defend my airspace. I cannot own the air the, the airspace I want to over Taiwan because it just gets really ugly. Um, and if we can do that, we can get a little further down the calendar without going to war is when my you, concern. And you look at that, like there, there's so much. It's not just sending planes, ships, weapons, to fight other plane ships and weapons. It's countries, you know, in some cases going to war. So there's an economic cost, there's a lives cost, there's an equipment cost, there's all these things. So looking at it as a single issue is just, it's just not tactically sound yeah. because you have to understand, yeah. like, like you said, every time they're spending, they're shooting million dollar missiles or multi-million dollar missiles to shoot down a multi-thousand dollar toy. It's like, that is a complete win. Bender, what do you got? Yeah. You've been it's too quiet too quiet no I'm, I'm thinking about everything you guys are saying i'm slower slower thinker than the rest of you so i just talked but too uh much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i think well i mean i just kind of wonder about the who, who really has the initiative right now and china does right as far as development so they're coming out with a new missile it seems like every six months to a year that is better than the last one and you know presents a lot of issues even for our best technology but i think that I think we're starting to turn a little bit. So there's some hope. Like I think the ACE concept is, you know, it's not perfect and it's really difficult and we haven't like solved all of the problems that come with that, but it does like Vader was saying, it complicates the enemy's problem a lot more. Like the things that we can bring to the fight there, all the stuff that they have to target and worry about, like that's good. So at least we're, I think we're at least trying to kind of send some problems their way. Whereas I feel like in the last like 20 years, like it's just been problems coming our way. Like I'm, I'm fighting with the same missile I fought with when I first started flying, you know, Vipers. And they're like six missiles more advanced than they were back in those days or whatever. So yeah. 
I just so in the ABL. So at Hill, we we after we talked to you the first time, uh, we had the ABL come out to Hill to give us some briefs in our uh, our reserve wing or whatever. And it was awesome just to see all the little projects that they are working on. And it's the really cool thing about it is it really is coming from the warfighter. Like there's a lot of like bull crap that is produced by Air Force Public Affairs and by the leadership of the Air Force or whatever, you know, like we're going to be innovative and blah, 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 blah. But no kidding, like the ABL actually is doing cool stuff um, where they're, you know, like there are like little stones that can... You probably know this already, but they're they're like sick. But like security forces, like we need to protect a, peri- a perimeter, but we only have, you know, there's only four of us. So how are we going to protect an airfield? Like okay, well these these little rocks that will, you know, they can be IR sensors or they can be like, um, I don't know, they can sense like movement yeah. or whatever. And so they just like scatter these rocks around a perimeter and it'll set off an alarm and then they just go send a drone over there to see what's what's going on. Like is it an animal? Is it a human? And I'm like, well that's that's pretty rad, you know, and that's not. I don't think big air force was like, we, you know, we got to solve this problem. It's just like this. You can't write a requirement for that because you don't know what is the art of the possible. You better, you touched on a few things about, you know, us and China, we built a force to be, to defeat the Soviets. And that is largely the force that we have on the field today. We won in desert storm. We said, that's the answer. Um, and the guys in 1992 were not wrong, but then China looked at that and said, we have to defeat that force. So China built a force to defeat us not defeat the Soviets. So they have, you know, the PLR, PLA rocket force is a service, just like we have the Army, the Air Force, the Space Force, they have a rocket force. So they get funding and they build out new missiles and all that kind of stuff. So that's why they're going fast. We have not built and fielded a force to defeat the PLA. And that's what, that's a lot of the change going on in the services. That's why the Marines are, you know, getting rid of tanks and and bringing in, you know, uh, tomahawks. Uh, in terms of, let me tell you a story about the, the intricacies of, of all that stuff. So you said, Hey, we've only got four guys to defend the perimeter saying, let's use rocks. Well, a few things. One, who is in charge of defending the fence line from long range missile attacks? It's not the security forces. It's not pilots. It's not Intel. It's nobody. We haven't organized, trained and equipped for the fight. We're going up against period and then when you start to feel those changes everything is taking far longer than it should so uh you know we played with robot dogs back in 2019 and 2020 gained a lot of notoriety um and others have kind of taken that baton so there's a wing out there that their security forces bought some robot dogs to augment their perimeter security stuff and then when they deployed to an ACE exercise, and I'm dating myself a year ago, so hopefully we've we fixed this to an extent, at least in this wing, maybe not others. Um, the security forces guys that had their, you know, their shipping containers that they could take, their stuff was completely maxed out. So they did not have room for the robot dogs to augment the perimeter security teams. Unmanned, low cost, doesn't eat, needs a little bit of power, but they couldn't bring them, so left it at home. Similarly, you had a fighter squadron who's, who had excess space. So they essentially bought a bunch of packing peanuts to throw into their ISU 90s to just fill the space up. I so even when you deploy... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think Vader and I know what, what's actually in that ISU 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've got pictures. Um, yeah, it's also not anything useful, if that's true. 
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So we haven't evolved the entire unit construct of the squadron, the wing, the mission set to where when security forces has all their stuff, plus they need some more now because of the new requirements, we haven't figured out how to merge, you know, just the shipping of those things. Um, but it's funny, like so I've got I've got solutions, non-material and material. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying is like we as a force have not yet said, hey, we're going to sit around a table. We're going to figure this out. Well, and that's but that's the comical thing. Like the logistics squadron is a base level squadron that is planning all of the logistics. So if there's one belly button that would be like, hey, look at all this extra room in these containers and look at these guys like the the fact that all of our funding get slowly pulled from the squadron to the group to the wing and then like divvied out to whoever needs it. But the fact we don't do that with our logistics and other things is, is it's unfortunate. Yeah. Maybe there's us. Yeah. Maybe it's supposed the, to happen. The silos of excellence in the air force are as strong as ever. Um, loggies don't talk to pilots and pilots don't talk to loggies. And then we talk about how we've got a logistics problem. Um, and, and it's not a, an Air Force problem. I remember seeing the same problems at, at Indo-PACOM, um, where I, as an Air Force officer, was telling the Army three-star that we're not putting logistics stuff into our budget requests. So that budget request got paused while we you know, updated our paperwork type of thing. Like We can't talk about a logistics problem if we're not asking to solve the logistics problem. Um, far too many wings. I've seen loggies whose job consists of taking the order from the customer to the engineer. Uh, to quote, you know, office space, people person. and they're not integrated in the plan. And it's not that it's not that individual loggies problem because I've seen it across multiple wings. Um, you know, we haven't integrated the force. And when you take some of those concerns to 
certain you know leaders in the logistics world it's they don't care um and we take it to other people they care but they can't do anything about it um and when you think about what a lot of not all because there's some amazing commanders out there that are you know throwing the rule book out the window um but then there's some commanders who are held accountable to the flying hour program and you know how much their pilots are flying and that kind of stuff and they're not allocating time to integrating the logistics piece and making those let's call it the design trade-offs once again to be agile with their unit i don't expect you know the f-15 or the f-35 unit to take 10 percent of what they should and and be awesome like the, the force wasn't built for that you know refrigerator perry cannot be a prima ballerina it wasn't built for that but refrigerator perry if needed can go on a diet and you know learn some learn a few moves type of thing. And that's what we're asking our legacy units to do. And I say legacy, we're all legacy now because we haven't, we haven't built those, those new things, whether it be with CCAs or, you know, U, UAS platform slash munitions. Um, but until we do that, we've got to, we've got to redesign what we can and, and then figure out where we're taking risk because you can't do this without risk. And I used to hit on that at every opportunity I could with, with uh, colonels and above, whether it's rooms full of them or just one-on-one -on -one, is what you're doing is not riskless. So let's just, let's just talk about it, honestly. Yeah. I, th I think one of the things that uh, I've heard or I've seen over the years, but I've, I've heard more recently is that we have exercises, you know, all of our MCT for everybody. I've actually, I don't think I've ever used MCT. I was supposed to, and then I just kept on living my life and then I just left. So sorry, Bender, you were yeah. probably my boss at that time. Uh, but either way, the uh, we have all of our metrics, and exactly like you said, they're, they're to fight Russia, they're to fight a previous war. So the way we do exercises right now are like sea burn, chemical, biological, radiological, whatever, nuclear, something like the, uh, we train to like, not like it's 1992 or whatever, like, put your gas mask on, get ready to get cammed. And now we've got our decam lines and it's like, is that the metric that's going to train us for tomorrow's fight? Like, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe it is, maybe I'm uh, unaware, but the reality is I just feel like we just take old metrics cause they're already on the shelf. We just brush the dust off and then we just utilize them because it's like, well, we don't have any other metrics built. So we're just going to keep doing this. Yeah, that's a great example of we do things though because we've always done them that way. Um, we are concerned probably about North Korea and maybe Russia using nukes and chem gear, but if a country doesn't need to use seaburn weapons, it will not use seaburn weapons. It will win the war conventionally. Um, so when it comes to exercises these days, we're used to everyone getting you know their vote. If you're a seaburn guy, oh, we need the seaburn you know, tag. So in the ABL, we built exercises that would just throw those pieces out the window. We didn't build them a lot. We didn't build a lot of exercises. We weren't doing this quarterly, but we were very specific about the things we were testing, evaluating, and training to. And we were taking risk by not doing those other things. When I was worried about the the intel threat or the, uh, the long-range missile threat, I wasn't concerned about uh, suicide bombers coming through the fence. We just didn't build an exercise around that. We didn't bring those people. We didn't pay for it. We didn't build it in the scenario. I'm not saying you never should ever again, but on the one to N list of importance, it was closer to N than it was closer to one. And 
if we're going to test out new ways of winning the war, new ways of owning the air domain, um, new ways of, of agility, risk, all that kind of stuff, the first exercise you should do should not be with Seaburn. It should be, can we launch these things? Can we talk to them? Do they go as far as we think they can? Do we know how to deconflict airspace? Or do we not care about deconflicting airspace? And do we know that, you know, in a training exercise, we are going to deconflict airspace, but, you know, if it's night one of the war, I'm going to descend outside of my, you know, altitude block with no SA and I'm going to be happy about it if I need to, because that's how I survive. Um, and I take that risk of just not knowing who's above or below me type of thing. Um, but we have not prioritized the important things. Um, one thing we did in the Agile Battle Lab to prioritize those things is start to add adversaries for ACE to exercises. So you weren't evaluating against the MCT checklist or the, the, the training, you know, being that the Seaburn guy, uh, put out there, but it was, you're fighting the adversary. And if the adversary didn't kill you, then you win. If the adversary killed you, then we learn from that, from that kill, you know? Um, and none of this is to insult the, uh, the Seaburn career field or whatever else. But as we're, as we're evolving the way in which we fight, you can't be concerned about everything all at once because if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. So you got to start at priority one, priority two, priority three, and work your way down the list. And if Seaburn's priority 10, awesome, but I'm not going to worry about it if priorities one, two, three through, you know, through seven have all been ignored type of thing. The, uh, I went to pilot training with this girl speak, say, meaning, uh, or what you, when you said that, uh, you know, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. And she would highlight every line of every page in her book, like in different highlighter. And I was like, does that is cause everything is, everything's a priority. I'm like, so there you go. She, she showed us, but yeah, one, I think that's, that's kind of my question is like, if we're truly executing ACE, if we're truly doing what we, what I envision ACE to be 10, maybe 30% of the actual base is going to have hands-on participation because most people are going to be left behind because people are just going to get like scattered around the wherever. And it's going to be a logistical nightmare, but the reality is most people probably don't play where Seaburn or our traditional exercises everybody has their hands on it. Am I, am I thinking about that incorrectly? Or do you think there is some of that? Like we need to make sure everybody gets a chance to, to be part of the exercise. Uh, yes and no. In our way, old way of doing things. Yes. And our new way of doing things. No. Um, so when, when I deployed to the deed, I went to the finance office and they were the finance office at the deed, as opposed to the finance office at, you know, Dias Air Force Base or whatever else. They did their same job forward as they did at home. Um, so in that case, yes, I don't care about finance when I'm dodging, you know, missile attacks type of thing. So don't don't bring them on the first chalk of, of manpower. Um, the first chalk should be very cross, should be very multi-capable, cross-functional, whatever words you want to use with the tactics, techniques, procedures, technology, uh, training, and policy to enable that. But when Chalk 2 comes through with that finance airman, that finance airman should be able to do something other than finance. Or, and this is ideal, they no longer train to be that sit in the office, you know, nine to three with training from, you know, noon to two type of thing, <laughs> finance that we're used to, and they should be doing something more war related. I'll give you a great example. 
um, calm. Been to exercises where communication is a problem. And this, I'm dating myself for a few years and we've made advances since then. But where the you know calm leadership says, I don't have time to practice on this. I've got to keep, you know, nipper up and running on my base. And I got to do, you know, nip, nipper, you know, email trouble tickets. And I said, well, tell the wing commander you're not going to do them. Because based on the wing commander stated priorities, ACE is more important than Tuesdays operations. So take risk on a Tuesday to train your people to do ACE so that they can do their combat mission. And if that means there's a delay in trouble tickets or whatever else, like it's it's accepted and it is advertised as the new priorities for the wing writ large, not just the comm person. Um, because we all respond to incentives and if your boss says do X before Y, you do X before Y. Um, but if he says Y is more important, then you say, I'm not going to do X until I've got Y figured out. And then you just take some risk with X and the commander should say, yeah, that that is in line with my guidance. Um, you know, Part of the definition for ACE is executed within threat timelines. And when you think about the old ways in which we deployed, I remember showing up to the processing line like six hours before I got on a commercial jet. I wasn't even flying a combat jet over. I wasn't packing anything into a C-17. I was just supposed to show up like six hours early to sit in a waiting room before I got on Delta Airlines to go to the Middle East. Now let's talk about threat timelines. Is that the way in which we're going to operate and survive? No. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff we got to change when it comes to ACE. And to a certain extent, we're doing what we can. And I commend the commanders that are doing what they can with what they have um, to go out and execute ACE. But we can also crank that dial up, crank it up to 11, and actually get at the needs for ACE. Like Bender... You mentioned some of the stuff that the ABO brought out and some of the stuff that we've actually got funding for, which is well outside of the job jar of the Agile Battle Lab, but because no one else is doing it, they did it. And it wasn't just having a burger burn at the deployed location. It was building real solutions that are ugly and not fun to execute under, but it's how you it's how you continue to survive and generate combat power. Um, and I'm not going to go into some of those details of the equipment, the training, whatever else. Uh, but like you said, they were doing it. They weren't just talking about it. And there's a lot of people that just talk about, we will survive or we will be agile, you know, with all the hand, hand waves and white cards that, that bring that about. But the real answer is we got to figure this stuff out. And if we think we're going to bring mass to the fight, it can't just be about putting some lipstick on the pig of our force design from the 1970s. We actually have to come up with a better force design based on the capabilities, the technology and the budget and the way in which we do things. And we've got to build new units for that. You know, um, we increased the size of air support operation squadrons, you know, for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. We are not changing our units for the future fight for China. That's wrong. Well, and that's my you question know? is like, we have all these rules and regulations of like, who can touch what airplanes and this, this person's the only person qualified to sign off the fact that this missile was loaded correctly and, and all of those. And, and somewhere we're going to just like break this point, you know, we're going to like crack the glass 
And now it's like, cool, calm. You now refuel airplanes. Hey, this person, you, you know, I land at some base and it's only F-16 maintainers. And it's like, I need fuel and weapons. Like, can you guys do that? Like, I, my understanding, my logic would be like, we have to. But are we just never going to train to it because we're not going to accept that responsibility until it's just too late? And then it's like, hey, we're just going to make it happen and probably even accept even more risk. There are. So there's good people trying to figure this out. I've been a lot of the, the staff knife fights. And the way I've seen this go down is you have a whole lot of career functional managers and MAGCOM functional managers that defend their rice bowl. You don't want an unqualified weapons person putting weapons on your jet, do you? Imagine what could go wrong. Oh, no, I, I don't. Well, hold on. How long is your 18-year-old's tech school to become qualified to put a weapon on a jet? Is it three years long or is it a few months long? Oh, I Okay. How, how many times has that crew chief watched that weapons dude put that missile on that jet? You think that crew chief who's been around planes for seven years might have an idea of how to do it? Yeah. Um, I am not a qualified air traffic control person. But as a T-6 FAPE, I controlled a T-6 pattern with 12 aircraft doing a whole bunch of different stuff. And I had like, I think I had some training logs, you know, where I filled up, you know, pieces of paper. I did so many traffic movements and blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't need an ATC person if I'm sitting in the tower, you know, for a low volume, um, airfield type of thing. Uh, the problem is we are approaching multi-capable airmen and its evolution from a point of view of what is my career field comfortable with, as opposed to what is necessary to get the job done. And how do I incentivize that? If I were a wing commander today, and I'm not. I'm a Mr. Mr. Chitwood. Yeah. If I were wing commander today, I would say there, there will be, sorry, retired. <laughs> there'll be no more awards given out that don't have multi-capable airmen training on it. You will either include in your awards package that you achieved a new skill and you're qualified in it, a three level skill. I learned how to chalk a jet. I learned how to refuel a jet. I learned how to operate the prick 117 golf radio. Or you will put in your awards package that you train someone how to do it. I train someone how to do my job so that when I die, they can do it. Or when we are now operating from three locations instead of one, and I can only be at one of those locations, I have now trained person how to operate at operating location Bravo and operating location Charlie, and I am an operating location Alpha standing by to A, run my airfield and also answer questions from operating locations Bravo and Charlie because they're not going to be experts that I am. And if you said that you can't win an award unless you have qualified on something new or you've qualified someone new on this. You're gonna see a drop in, um, I don't know, uh, whatever community, whatever stuff people do that I remember having to do for, for quarterly and annual awards. And you're gonna see a whole lot of finance guys and gals get smart on setting up tents and uh, chow hall stuff and, uh, you know, You'll see doctors learning about food safety instead of talking about COVID. And you'll see main, age maintainers learning how to turn a jet because you have maintainers in your units. You don't know this. You have maintainers in your units that they're qualified to touch the support equipment in your unit, but they're not qualified to use that equipment on the jet. Only the aircraft maintainer can use that equipment on that jet. And if that is a Dash 60 for you, Vader, 
uh, that you know provides you know essentially air to your jet. The CE person in your unit who you know knows air conditioning for tents is not allowed to touch that support equipment that does air conditioning for a jet, and that the guy that does the air conditioning for jets isn't allowed to touch the air conditioner for your tent. Um, and nor have we built a requirement that says the air conditioner for a tent is good enough to be the air conditioner for a jet yeah. <laughs> or the power plug going to the jet is also the power plug that goes to your tent or your, you know, whatever else. So across the board, we are not doing what could be done to make us a much more agile, lethal and resilient force. Well, and that's because we're approaching it from the perspective of what am I comfortable with as opposed to hold my beer, show me what you got. And the first wing commander that can do it, you know, with a third of their manpower, I can do it for, I don't know, call it, you know, five straight days. He gets a star immediately, you know, combat promotion. Well, and I think honestly, there's a, probably a lot of people in the military who would be totally excited to just get the opportunity to go learn something new, to get out of their office and yeah, like maybe tense or maybe it's just go learn the TCCC, the new, the, the ASBC or no, was it? AC, AC, whatever it was, the self-aid buddy care, SBC. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like the, what is it? SABC. SABC. Yeah. Too many SABC. Acronyms. We'll get there. TCCC <laughs> now. But like, hey, the comm guy becomes the like a TCCC, a combat care person or, you know, stuff like that. There, there could be so much because I think a lot of people want to do it. I mean, I, I argued back in the day that like any TDY, any school, any training that anybody wants to go to that their squadron or wing or whatever can fund, let them go. Like if I want to go to advanced hand-to-hand combat or advanced marksman's, marksman school, or if, if somebody wants to go to like survival, let them go. If there's spots and there's money, like let's make people one, just make a benefit of being in the military and give them the chance to participate in stuff that on the average day they don't get to. And you can, you can train the trainer. You don't have to go TDY to a tech school to become qualified on something. The one Charlie Oscar in your squadron that sits at the front desk doing your, your flying currencies you can send them down on a Tuesday to the comm squadron and have them learn how to use a radio, how to set it up, how to encrypt it, um, how to sign for the encryption, how to handle the encryption, all that kind of stuff. So that when you do deploy to those three operating locations, you don't need to bring, bring three times the comm people. You've got your one Charlie Oscar who knows how to use a Prick 117 Golf to communicate to an airborne jet as well as, you know, uh, TACSAT you know, reaching over the horizon to, to whoever else. Can we make them um, a top three also? That'd be sweet. <laughs> what does top three do? Like look at flying currencies, look at the, yeah. you know, your, your ORM card, like too easy. Now, yeah. What is, what is the role of a top three at a contingency location? Is it just the pilot? Is it, do I need a squadron commander just running the squadron? Like at a certain point in time, our commanders have to be taught the operational level of warfare. And then all those things that we think we needed, you know, you've got a soft and you've got a top three and you've got your ATC guys and you got your one Charlie's like, do I need all that? Have we built a UTC for that? No, we've just copied right now the UTCs that we used to have. So when I deployed to the deed, I sat soft. I couldn't control traffic because once again, I'm not a qualified air traffic controller, but if you align jets up on an ILS, like I got it. Yeah. 
Bender, what do you got? Yeah, I think, uh, well, in the reserves, it's kind of interesting too because a lot of these guys have normal jobs, right? And then they just come in one weekend a month or whatever. So you got diesel mechanics who are one charge. Bingo. Or like those guys are ready to do, you know, that kind of stuff. So there is a little bit of push, which is kind of cool. Like our wing commander is like, all right, let's get a database. Like what are all, what are the skills? Like some of them are cops in real life, but they're firefighters in the Air Force or they're nurses or whatever in real life, but they come in and they do command posts. Anyway, so there, there's a lot of that. And people have, you know, different hobbies that do qualify them. Or and the answer looks different in the guard and the reserves. But we need to like, let's, now let's qualify those people. Let's get them on a letter of X's that say, you are now, I know you're a cop in our unit, but you're an electrical engine, you're an electrical, you're an electrician and you're a real, real, you know, job. Like I'm, I'll, I'll slap a CE badge on you, pass the yeah. test. And because here's what happens when that, when that CE guy dies or gets malaria or whatever else, you can't just wait for the next CE guy to come on the, the rotator from, from a sister guard unit or whatever else. But if you've got a guy who knows how to like, you know, plug stuff in and, I don't know what electricians do. Clearly, I'm not qualified to be an electrician. Um, <laughs> You're the first. You get the you get, you get the idea, um, yeah. and it might it might even be like turning the jet. Uh, I'm going to say something really crazy. I don't think we need to go to this detail right now, but you know, if it if if a jet lands and that jet needs to be you know launched again, but you as a pilot have been awake for you know 24 hours on you know, on, on Dexedrin, it might not be a good idea to quick turn you to another combat sortie, but there might be, you know, someone else at that location knows how to fly a jet. He's not going to fly to combat, but he might just fly it back to a different location where there are more pilots to make the next push or something along those lines. Um, that gets really weird. And I'm not advocating for that as the, on the one to end list, that's an N, you know, for MCA type stuff, but there's so many other things. Like I've, we have set up and run exercises where, the C2 location is a pilot, an Intel dude, and a, or is a pilot, a TAC-P, and I think the Intel guy was just kind of there. It takes two and a half minutes to set up, two and a half minutes to tear down, and I don't need all these extra things because I've got the software to kind of build SA, and as pilots and TAC-Ps, like, they, they've got a lot of SA, you know, they can, they can ingest all that information, and they can make decisions on the fly, so they don't need, like, a whole staff to run a squadron or a group or whatever else. Um... So there's things, you know, that are lower hanging fruit, more productive than pilots being multi-capable in their jets. But in the Marines, pilots know how to refuel their jets. Bender, do you know how to refuel your jet? Actually, I had to refuel my jet in uh, when we dropped into uh, Sicily on an AOS when? back home. Because the Italian guys were like, we can't touch your airplane. Or so they, they like brought the fuel hose, but I'm like, oh crap, like where does this thing go? So it took a little and while. And somehow but- you did it. You I didn't did. blow I made up. it happen. And also, this is a big shout out to myself. Vader, you might have been here when we <laughs> dropped into Iwakuni. And the JFIS, we had a jet with a JFIS leak, the JFS, I mean, jet fuel starter. Is that what it is? Yep. yep. Anyway, so we kept having to, we needed to pump up the JFIS, but there was no JFIS. Like, there's a special tool that they use to pump the thing. Yeah. So we took like the gear pins. And we were like using the gear pin to like pump this bottle, which was almost impossible. And we were in poopy suits. And uh, anyway, it was, so we pumped it with the, the gear pins <clears throat> and then we'd run and jump in the jet before it leaked too much to, to not start. Anyway, it took three tries to finally get the thing pumped up or whatever. And the Japanese were just sitting there like, what 
is going on. You guys look like retards, but it worked. And we got the jet started and flew it home or whatever. So there's a lot of stories about that. Like it, multi-capable airmen is far more capable as a concept than we let on in the air force and that we have tried to, you know, max perform. Um, yeah, you're not the first pilot to turn their jet, but if you've never done it, you need to call back home. Um, and, and we can build the, the tech, the tactics, the training, all that kind of stuff to dial that risk up and down based on what is needed. And it's not just multi-capable airmen, it's tactics. It's about, do you need an 8,000 foot runway? Do you need a wire to, to land at? No, you don't. We're just used to like having zero risk. Therefore I need a wire everywhere I go. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of places you can go that don't have wires. We don't train to that because what would happen if? And we don't think about, well, if we're worried about that, how do we mitigate that? Can we do a brake check before before we start up and before we launch? You know, there's a there's a lot of stuff out there. And as we think through the brand new technology we're gonna field, let's not just say that CCAs are the answer before we have any idea how to integrate it, before we have any idea what the limitations and the pros are, because I can guarantee you. The AI to run those is but one of the many uh, pass or fail pieces of technology to fight the war. And I don't mean fly at Edwards. I mean fight the war. Yeah. Well, I love that. I think that's a perfect uh, perfect end note, and uh, I got to get running. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's so much. And, Adam, thank you for being back on here. Uh, congrats on the retirement. And uh, we'll have to have you back on in a couple months just to hear what you're up to then. Um, Sounds great. Sweet. Well, uh, remember, like, share, subscribe, uh, and, um, you know, follow us on LinkedIn and uh, follow Adam Chitwood. It'll, his, uh, his LinkedIn will be on the show notes if you want to go see more stuff he's posting and, uh, and follow us. Instagram as well for uh, videos of all this stuff. And on YouTube, uh, you can watch all three of us, uh, all our smiling faces while we uh, chat about all the uh, inefficiencies that we experience. Uh, but Bender, uh, any parting uh, shots before we go? No, just thanks again for coming out and joining us. And you did a good job with the ABL. So when I when I got Thank to experience when the what they were kind of putting out, it was it was impressive. It was good stuff. So nice work. They're great people. Thanks. Yeah, if you're military and you want to actually do some real exercises and, and step your game up, reach out to the ABL because they're doing some good work. All right, thanks again. See ya. Take care, gents. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.